Who is the true St. Nicholas? Part 2. The Legend of St. Nicholas. A celebration of the invention of discovery. Praise a higher family. The great I am. The holy, righteous and eternal king. The only true and wise God. The almighty. So picking up from where we got to in our first part one. As I was saying, perhaps the most appalling of all the things that Pope Nicholas did in these papal bulls were the plenary indulgences he gave to the participants in the slave trade. Because Pope Nicholas essentially absolved all the participants in the trade, specifically of their murders, thefts, of all their crimes that they would commit in pursuance of this trade. Now, I managed to get hold of an English translation of the papal bull called Dumb Diversus. And it says, I quote, a plenary forgiveness of all and individual sins, crimes, trespasses, and digressions, which you and they have confessed with contrite heart and by mouth to you and to those who accompany you, as often as you and they happen to go into any war against the mentioned infidels, who, of course, we know to be our forefathers, they call the Saracens, in that edict. So it then goes on to say that if it should happen that your others, of those accompanying you against the Saracens and other infidels of this kind, on the way there, staying there, or on the way back, departed from this world, it goes on to say that We restore you and those accompanying you, remaining in sincerity and unity through the present letter to pure innocence in which you and they existed after baptism at birth. Oh, my gracious. So um, essentially, the Pope assumed the responsibility or ability to remit sins and told these people they would be considered to be a sinless as a newborn baby, essentially, if they committed these crimes on the basis of them having this letter in their presence um, on their deathbed, or if they happen to die on on the way or get sick on the way. Oh, goodness. Because, boy, did they unleash hell on all the indigenous and non Europeans they encountered, from which many nations that managed to survive are still reeling to this day, totally exterminating some races of people so they're no longer on the planet today because they believe that this very Pope, Pope Nicholas V, who had no such authority, had given them an absolution and forgiven them of their sins and of their crimes. Mark 2.7 confirms that only Yahuwah God alone has the power to forgive sins, which also confirms the identity of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And, you know, the word of God that goes on to remind us, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come. He's talking about the return of, of Yeshua. Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, so that he as God 
sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the mystery of iniquity or mystery Babylon that Paul stated was at work from his day in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-9. You know, there is an adage that says, the mills of God may grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Yahuwah, the God of the whole earth, is going to do what is right. And because his judgment is so terrible, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He grants a long space of time in order to extend mercy, to give space for repentance, to see whether the offender will see their mistake, amend their ways and change their course. But of course, they in no wise change their course and came together again as recently as the 19th century, where all the nations again met, in 1884 to be precise, at the Berlin Conference, where all the European nations now came together to carve up Africa between themselves. And the legacy of that action has perpetuated and continues through many of the coups and political infiltration and instability that persists in many of these countries in the, to the present day. All I can say is that, however, now, unfortunately for them, they have fallen into Yahuwah's hands. But uh, coming back to Pope Nicholas, because it was he who really, I guess, established the foundation for this whole doctrine of discovery. The final nail in the pillar in this doctrine was cemented by a final third papal bull called Intra Catera. And this basically sealed this policy, this doctrine of discovery, though it was actually another pope, a successor to Pope Nicholas, namely Pope Alexander VI, who passed this final papal bull, Intra Catera. And he passed it to settle a squabble between Spain and Portugal over the ownership of lands in the New World. So I'm really maybe intending to talk about Pope Nicholas here. I don't want to digress too much to talk about Pope Alexander. And uh, possibly we don't need to say too much about him. I really just wanted to give context as to how the whole doctrine of discovery was finalized, if you will, which is why I've actually brought this other Pope, Alexander, into the, into the frame. So, as I say, Pope Nicholas V really did very much lay the foundations through his two edicts, Dum Diversus and Romanus Pontiflex, for what Pope Alexander then went on to ratify through his final subsequent bull, Intracatera, which means, among other matters, I mean, even the naming of this law just reeks of arrogance. But this papal bull now was passed to settle a squabble between Spain and Portugal over the ownership of the New World, namely the Americas. To settle the argument, Pope Alexander divided the New World in half, down an imaginary line of longitude running through the eastern part of modern-day Brazil. He gave everything on the east of this line to Portugal, and everything on the west he gave to Spain. Precisely as we see today, all of the lands in South America on the east speak Portuguese, and the lands on the west speak Spanish. This doctrine of discovery, ratified by this final papal bull, became the basis of all European claims to colonize the Americas, and over time, the settling of our people to work the plantations there. 
I believe they, namely the Vatican, have tried to put some distance between themselves and this doctrine in more recent times. I believe in 2010, a Vatican ambassador to the United Nations was trying to tell a UN permanent forum on indigenous issues that the papal bull Intracatera had been rescinded by subsequent bulls and treaties over the centuries and is today merely a historic remnant with no judicial, moral or doctrinal value. Oh, how convenient, after all the damage has been done. The formalising of the initiation of the transatlantic slave trade in earnest, which is what Pope Nicholas, his papal bull Dunde Versus, legalised, was in actual fact really their second attempt to establish a slave trade. They'd attempted initially to establish an initial trade by setting up plantations on an island called St. Tome off the west coast of Africa. Today, these islands are called St. Thomas and Principe, just off the coast of Guinea. However, that failed at the expense of many of our people, mostly children, who were trafficked or taken there, mainly from Portugal. This was really all at a very pivotal time in history. I'm in process of actually doing a video about this whole period in history, as it was very pivotal in establishing the state of our world as we find it today. That video will be called 1492, The Past Present. So do look out for that. But anyway, coming back to these two popes and focusing, as I say, on Pope Nicholas, because as I say, he was the genesis of much of what we see and experience in terms of the sheer order of things in our modern world today. It was he who really founded the doctrine of discovery that was built upon by his successor, Pope Alexander VI, which has come down to us in more modern times as colonialism. Granted, the British, who were responsible for quite a large component of colonialism, did set up their own separate Protestant church, presided over by their own monarchy as head of their church. And just uh, to digress slightly, because this really is a fallacy. No man, not even a monarch, unfortunately, can be head of God's own church. This really is a blasphemy. Only God and God alone is head of his own church. But even though supposedly this Protestant church was now a separate church, it really was from its inception identical in almost every other doctrinal point to its Catholic counterpart except, of course, in the recognition of the ultimate ruler or heads of these two churches. And this new Protestant church did really mirror the behaviours of the Catholic Church in terms of the implementation of this doctrine of discovery that these two popes had, le had legislated, because they also did seize ownership themselves of many lands. But incidentally, I should mention that Pope Alexander VI was one of the same Pope Alexander of infamous Borgia fame. It was he who commissioned Leonardo da Vinci to paint his son as the image of the effeminate Christ that the earth is familiar with as the image of Jesus Christ to this day. You might argue, son, when Pope's supposed to be celibate? He had several children. If you do your research on the internet on this wicked family, you'll see they were famous for or should I say infamous, for four things. Corruption, cruelty, incest, and murder. Precisely as I've always said about the Magi, 
they do tend to mix everything together and make no distinction between the holy and the profane. Because he did all of that, of course, while being Pope. But uh, anyway, I've talked about this further in a separate recording called the Magi 101, which was done for repairers of the breach. It's not actually on the Hebrew Diaspora News Channel. But it's accessible on the words page of our website, repairersofthebreach.online. So these two popes between them set the course for everything we see in our world today, particularly in terms of the, as I say, the order of things, the inequalities and the subjugation of Hebrews and more generically, all indigenous and non-white peoples. They authorised the European kings to initiate and carry out the slave trade, essentially. So we can see that references to Father Christmas, a.k.a. St. Nicholas, are actually references to the papacy. And uh, this institution is described in Revelations 17.18 as the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. Exactly as we explained in the part one, as one of the attributes or ascribed by the papacy to themselves as king of their kingship over kings. So hence the reason for Father Christmas being depicted as a grey-haired, elderly European man who never seems to die, because, of course, there's always an incumbent ruling in the papacy in that role. So I submit to you that the true story being hidden in this narrative is that Santa Claus, or Sinterklaus, Father Christmas, is actually code for Pope Nicholas V and what he did in his role of effectively initiating their age of so-called discovery of the supposed new world, and also in subjugating our forefathers, Yashrael or Israel, including in a real sense to this day, as one of their famous old Christmas songs goes. By these traditions, are they dreaming of a white Christmas or expressing the sentiments that their days continue to be merry and bright and all their Christmases or days be white, as opposed to the times in the Dark Ages? when our forefathers were ruling in Europe? So are you surprised to see that, according to this narrative, Santa Claus is actually a high-ranking man of a cloth, the Catholic Church to be exact, or the Pope? You have to remember that this period in history marked the onset of the Inquisitions in earnest and the start of the great, I can only call it, whitewashing of our history, which came to be known as the Enlightenment in Britain or the Renaissance in France, which marked the start of a concerted effort to finally rid the rest of Europe of our people. I understand in the case of Britain, this was completed by the, about the 13th century, and this is all factual history, but a somewhat inconvenient truth. Oh, many may say it happened so long ago as to be no longer relevant. But in reality, only the ill-informed would really say so. Even philosophers of history will tell you to forget your history and to fail to learn its lessons is to be assured of repeating its mistakes in the future. And true to form, it has proven to be a history that the West particularly seem to be unable to move past or on from and refuse to hold themselves to account. But coming back to looking at the identity of the true St. Nicholas, aren't you surprised to learn that Father Christmas, this St. Nicholas, is 
really a covert reference for the Pope? And that you're taking your children to see the Pope when you take them at Christmas to sit on Santa's knee? I mean, by their own admission, the word Pope, in fact, actually means Papa or Father. But what exactly are we being told? Because if that is the case, then this most Christmassy of traditions would not only be an admission, but positively glorying in a crime against our people. So what are the Gentiles doing when they celebrate this holiday precisely, especially with the giving and receiving of gifts? They are actually receiving and celebrating the downfall of you, Yasharel. You are and have been an invaluable gift to them, the gift that just keeps on giving. And by all accounts, giving homage to the Pope, who is revered as having brought wealth or, in quotes, perpetual Christmases, if you will, to Western supposed civilization by subjugating Israel as one of the core tenets of that. So what do you think of that? Father Christmas or Santa Claus, Santa Claus, a.k.a. St. Nicholas, being code for Pope Nicholas V. Hence his depiction as an old man who never seems to die with grey hairs. You see how the whole thing comes together now. But equally, could the Pope or Father Christmas be something or be code for something spiritual or more sinister? Because what are we actually revering through this tradition or custom? I mean, spiritually. Let's look a bit more closely at how Santa or Father Christmas is depicted. Because isn't he, Father Christmas, depicted as a flying sky wizard, complete with floppy pointy hat, being pulled through the air on his gift-laden sky chariot by some kind of magical means? Hmm. So what exactly are we being shown in this tale of Father Christmas? And moreover, what are we teaching to our children? More worryingly still, could we possibly be being shown Ephesians 2.2, the prince and power of the air, none other than Satan himself? But note, he is only the prince of the air. Do princes rule? No, only kings do. Yahuwah is the king and principal power of the air. Ultimately, whichever way you want to take it, are we being shown a cute and cuddly Satan? Perhaps the clue is in the name. Because just moving the letter N in the name Satan from the sixth to the third character gives us, gives us the name of his alter ego, namely Santa. As we say, while Ephesians 2.2 reminds us, he is only the prince of the air. It's important to remember that while he may have some limited power to play with, all power is ultimately Yahuwah's. There is no power but the power of Yahuwah. Yahuwah explained himself in Romans 13 verse 1 to 2, and I'm reading from the Sefer, that the powers that be are ordained of Yahuwah. Whosoever resists or essentially misappropriates that power, calling it magic or misuses it for any other purpose, resists the ordinance of God, of Yahuwah, and shall receive to themselves damnation. So we can see what the Gentiles may be doing when they celebrate this holiday, including inadvertently. But what are you doing, Yasharel, when you celebrate it? 
as I say, this festival, Christmas, Yasharel, is none of Yeshua's and has nothing whatsoever to do with you. And if anything, you can see, particularly if you look at the sort of buffoonery around the Black Pete legend, it's more designed to make a mocking stock of those of our people who would celebrate it. Please see the other article published, Tis the Season of the Witch, for further commentary on this, which, as I said, looks at Romans 11 and the blindness that has happened to Israel and how the Apostle Paul explains that the downfall of Yasharel would be the riches of the world and her exaltation, the resurrection from the dead. These evil papal laws and their effects on the Hebrews or Yasharelites or Israelites, and not just us, but all indigenous people globally, form an important cornerstone, a milestone in the evolution of supposed Western civilization. And moreover, as I say to my knowledge, they have never been repealed. So we can see that, we can see what Europeans may be celebrating when they observe this holiday. But what do you think you're doing, Yasharel? So what do you think, Yasharel family? Still think this is, a, this is a holiday that we should be celebrating? So that's the end of our commentary today on who is the true St. Nicholas and our part two, the legend of St. Nicholas, a celebration of the invention of discovery. We are the repairers of the breach, Isaiah 58, 12. Hashtag, we will restore his paths. This recording was made for the 3rd of January, 2023 for Hebrew Diaspora News. God bless family. Fair use. Of a white Christmas with every Christmas